You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. Well, I wonder if you could spend an evening with Jesus Christ, what you might ask him. I wonder if you know, just a, one evening in the room with Jesus, what questions would come to your mind. I also wonder what he might ask you. Or me? What questions would he have uh, for us if we were to spend an evening with him? Well, we begin a new sermon series this week called Many Rooms. We take the name from a phrase in the uh, what's called the Upper Room Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. Jesus is to break it to his disciples now that he's leaving. After having spent three years with them, he says, I'm going away. And you can just imagine the trauma of those words for uh, his first disciples who had grown not only to uh, depend on him, but to love him. And, And Jesus, in this upper room discourse, begins to use the room itself as a metaphor for intimacy with God. He prepares a room for them. He comes to meet them in this room, we will find. It's a room that's available to you and to me even today. He asks them to come to him and he gives six invitations. Six invitations to experience Jesus Christ after he's gone physically, but remains present to us in this intimate room uh, spiritually. Invitations like love, growth, courage, hope, belief. Belief, ultimately, the foundation, the first of all these, is where Jesus uh, begins. Would you open your Bible to John uh, chapter 14, uh, verses 1 through 7, which you'll find on page 877 of the Pew Bible. And let's stand and read God's word together. John chapter 14, verses 1 through 7. After we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord. And if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully. We're reading God's holy word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many dwelling places. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself so that where I am, There you may be also. And you know the way to the place where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the father except through me. If you know me, you will know my father also from now on. You do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what we just read never will. Please be seated. Lord, you gave us this word. You prepared a room for us. And we listen. We have been promised that faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, belief, 
looks different from the outside than it does from the inside. This is true of so many things, actually. And uh, C.S. Lewis, in one of my favorite essays that Lewis writes, uh, explores this a little bit. The essay is called A Meditation in a Tool Shed. And Lewis asks the reader to imagine that you are in a dark room, a tool shed. Hardly any light. You can't see much in the room, except that there's a gap between the top of the door and the bottom of the roof. And there's a, a single shaft of light that comes into the room. And, and Lewis says you can experience this as an outside perspective or with an inside perspective. You can experience that shaft of light by looking through it. Or you can experience it by looking along it. When I look through it, Lewis says, I, I can see it well enough. I can see it illumines particles of dust in the tool shed, leaving all the rest of the room in pitch blackness. But if I take a half step to the side and allow that beam to fall now directly on my eyeball, I no longer see through it. I see along it and I no longer see a tool shed. I no longer see darkness. What I see now in the distance are green fluttering leaves on a distant tree blown by the wind. And I see as though 90 million miles away the sun itself. He says both experiences are experiences of the same thing, a shaft of light. But the difference is your perspective. And I think we have different perspectives of belief, depending on whether we choose to look at it from an outside perspective or from an inside perspective. What is belief? Well, whatever it is, it appears to be something that these three disciples whom uh, John portrays for us here at the beginning of the upper room discourse do not yet have, which is a surprising thing. They've been with Jesus for three years, but they do not believe in Jesus. What a difference a preposition can make. Jesus says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in me. He says, let not your hearts be troubled because they clearly are. Each of these three men comes to Jesus with a question. An urgent question. I mean, everything's urgent when it's a moment of departure. Someone's saying goodbye. And so you don't mess around. You say what's most important. And so they ask their best question and Jesus gives his most important answer. Believe in me, he says. Let's look at these three questions together because I think John preserves them not just because they are historical, but also because the kinds of questions they ask are the kinds of questions that you and I ask of Jesus. And they betray each one of them a different way of looking at belief from an outside perspective. That is, these three questions, each of them show shows us what belief is not. And so let's begin with Simon Peter, who asks the first question in verse 36 of chapter 13. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will have denied me three times. Peter's question, Lord, 
Where are you going? Where are you going? See, because Peter's expectation is that if he knew where, he'd be able to meet Jesus there himself. He'd be able to go there with Jesus, possibly even ahead of Jesus, and make sure it's okay for him. Peter's always trying to take care of Jesus. He wants to know the way. From the outside, belief looks to Peter like action. Action. That's the first outside perspective on belief. It looks like action, and it does to us sometimes, but this is exactly how we can't see belief. And there are two reasons why. The first is that we lose our way. We lose our way. And if if belief were about our actions, when we lost our actions, we'd lose our belief also. I'm reminded of the the prayer someone prayed. Dear Lord, so far today I've done all right. I haven't gossiped, haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But Lord, in a few minutes, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm going to need a lot more help. I mean, that's my prayer. Peter denies Jesus three times and I say, just three? Look at my life. I will deny Jesus three times every day. I I lose my way all the time. And so did the Apostle Paul, who writes in Romans 7. This great believer says, yet I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want is what I do. And we are reminded that the church is not a museum for saints, but it's a hospital for sinners. And true believers will lose their way often in life. And if belief were about our actions, then you and I would lose heart. We would hear that proverbial cock crow and we would know again we have denied Jesus Christ. And maybe in exactly the same way that we did yesterday. And there's this kind of recurring pattern of failure in my life. And I might say, if I thought this was what belief was all about, God, you must be done with you for I seem uh, with me for I seem to be done uh, with you. No, we would lose our way if belief were about our actions. The second thing, though, is we would lose Jesus on our way. Peter seems to do so. He's just very ironic. John captures the irony. Peter says, Lord, I will lay down my life for you. And for those who have been reading the Gospel of John, we know those are pregnant words. But Jesus has used them to portray exactly the purpose that he comes to earth to achieve. It's that he might lay down his life for lost sheep that he comes. Peter, really, will you lay down your life for me? Is that what belief is all about? Your extreme dedication that somehow makes the world safe for me? Or is it exactly the other way around? Is it exactly that I am the one who offers an atoning sacrifice for you, not you for me? At the end of the 19th century, the church had been so prolific in its contributions to American society. I mean, a lot of great reforms came out of uh, 19th century Christianity. That There became um, a tendency to mistake the actions of the church for its core doctrine, its kerygma. The uniqueness of Jesus Christ. 
So that by the beginning of the 20th century, there was this movement that thought Christianity is really all about the actions of well-intentioned people who are up to the changing, the transformation of society. And H. Richard Niebuhr, the great theologian, would say, no, no, no. You have an empty gospel if you think that's what Jesus is calling us to believe. He says, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. That's what we get when we think belief is about our actions. It's about us. And Niebuhr says, no, it's not. It's about a good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. God does not look the other way at evil. He does not wink at injustice and say, boys will be boys. He brings judgment upon himself on the cross. And precisely because he does that, the human race can be liberated. We would lose Jesus if we thought it were all about our actions. And Jesus knows that Peter's going to lose his way. He's telling him that right now. And yet he says, Peter, don't be concerned about that. You'll be concerned about believing in me. From the outside, belief looks to Peter like action. Uh, But there's another disciple and there's another question. Thomas steps forward. We see in Thomas's question that from the outside, belief sometimes looks uh, like understanding. Knowledge, doctrine. You see, Thomas, in verse five of chapter 14, says to Jesus, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? You kind of see the progression. Peter wanted to know what the way was. Thomas wants to know how we know the way. This is the the purview of the epistemologist, the study of knowledge. How do I know? He wants truth. See, Peter gets I mean, Thomas gets a bad rap, I think. Thomas is oftentimes described to us as what? The doubter. Yeah, well, that's not fair. That's not right, actually. I, I, think, I think Thomas is uh, far from being a doubter. He's actually a seeker. Thomas is a truth seeker. And uh, as the story goes on, in the same Gospel of John, we see that Thomas comes up to these apostles and they're all telling a strange tale of resurrection. And Thomas is going, you've had too much communion. I won't believe what you guys are saying until I can put my fingers in the nail holes. He's a bit of an empiricist. He wants the faith that is based on reason, rationality. It's, It's a faith that stands up when you ask questions of it. And Jesus doesn't deny him this. Jesus is very careful the next time he appears to the disciples to invite Thomas to come now, Thomas. Put your hands and feel, see. Jesus welcomes his pursuit of truth. It's not the same thing as belief. Jesus is known throughout his ministry for questions. I mean, people are constantly coming, are they not? You think of the stories of Jesus. It always begins with someone bringing a question to Jesus. But unfortunately, he's oftentimes known for not answering those questions, at least not directly. I think I have so many questions, so many questions. Jesus, why did you put this story in the Bible? Jesus, why does God give us this commandment? It makes no sense to me. Jesus, why did God allow this to happen in my life? These circumstances, I I just can't make any sense out. Have you ever thought that the reason Jesus doesn't sometimes answer our questions directly is because he cannot? 
Is it possible that God can't answer all the questions that we ask? Not because God doesn't know the truth, but because perhaps our brains don't have the capacity to hold it all. I love what uh, Tim Keller says about uh, traditional societies, pre-modern and even in some places today around the world. It's traditional society is very hierarchical and there's a respect for authority. The, the leader of the clan or the, or the prince, the tribesman or, or the, the father figure in, in, in society has authority. And, and when he says something, and it's usually a he says something, it goes and you believe it. Now, we're not like that at all. And for many very good reasons. A patriarchy is one of them, but distrust of people who hold too much power. And, and, and so we don't have anybody in, in, in America who has power over us except who rules by our leave, right? We, we give them the ability to govern us. But even there, when a, a ruler tells us something, a governor or president or something, we don't see the sense of it. We can't understand it. Well, we just don't do it. See, because for us to understand is the important thing. And we obey when we understand. But does this work with God? Does it? Some of you are parents. Let's imagine you're a parent of a, an eight-year-old child. Maybe you are an eight-year-old child, or someday you'll have an eight-year-old child. And, and you, you say to your child, um, no, honey, uh, you can't eat that. And uh, she protests and grows in aggravation and wants to know why. Why can't I eat that? And, you know, we, try, we were good parents. We try to explain this. We see if we can communicate the reason. You say something about health and nutrition and so forth. But she doesn't believe that. She doesn't understand that. She doesn't care about anything you just said. I want the cookie. Right? So here's what you do. Right? Ultimately, you say, you, this is what you say. You say, Sweetheart, now, the reason you can't have that cookie is because you're eight years old and I'm 45. (laughs) Right? And there may be some resistance, but ultimately, our children will receive that. They will accept that. They don't understand it, but they'll accept it. And the reason is because they trust you. It's because of a loving relationship. They know you love them. Why aren't we the same way with God? Do you really want a God whom you can understand in its entirety, his entirety? Would you want to worship a God whose data set of knowledge is the same data set of knowledge that you have? The scriptures tell us that God is infinitely wise, all knowing, transcendent in his being, Should we be surprised that there are things that God understands that we never will, that he just can't compress and compact for the the spaces of our uh, little cranial cavities? There must be more to God than that. And so um, when Thomas does find himself putting his fingers in Jesus's side, notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, ah, Jesus now I agree with you about the resurrection. He, he doesn't say, Jesus, uh, you and I understand each other. You've been a good rabbi. Thanks for communicating information. No, he falls to his knees and he says, my Lord and my God. It's a moment of appreciation of the transcendence of Jesus. And from the outside, sometimes belief looks like 
understanding, like action, like understanding. And thirdly, from the outside, belief sometimes looks like experience. And Philip is the one who demonstrates this with his question in verse eight. Philip approaches Jesus. He says, Lord, show us the father and we will be satisfied. Jesus said to him, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still do not know me. Whoever has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father and the father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own, but my father who dwells in me does his works. Philip is very much like Moses at this point. Remember Moses on Mount Sinai would say, Lord, let me see your glory. I want to see it with my own eyes. Thomas has heard that Jesus has come to give life and some kind of abundance. And now he says, I want to see that life. Take me to a place. Hide me in the cleft of the rock. But open my eyes so that I can see the glory of God. The Shekinah smoke and fire and power. Dazzle me with your brilliance, Jesus. And Jesus just shakes his head and says, Philip, have you been with me so long? Philip says, uh, if you show me this, I'll be satisfied. That word satisfied could also be translated sufficient or it would be enough. It, when you and I think that belief is about our experience, let me tell you, you will never have had enough. You'll never have had enough. You'll always need more. You'll always need another hit, another shot of a bigger or better experience to pull you through your relationship uh, with God. Think of what he's seen. Well, he's seen the multiplication of loaves and the feeding of 5,000. He's seen a man born blind open his eyes and see. He's seen a dead man, Lazarus, rise from the dead and walk about. And he says, I, I think it's all great, but I need something more. To be satisfied. If uh, Thomas were to represent to us, beginning of the 21st century, the impulses of modernity, which is to say, I, I don't believe in any truth that I can't uh, establish through rational inquiry or the scientific method. And I think Philip, for us, might represent post-modernity who has allowed doctrine altogether to fall out of spirituality and and believe now that the, the substance of spirituality is experience. To, to have a hermeneutic of suspicion. I really don't believe anything about truth except for my own first-hand experience. And this is the way we think about spirituality in the broader world and culture. Many different spiritualities. But if they're, they're genuine, if they're, if they're validated through uh, experience. A spiritual person is somebody who has about her a kind of a, an inner harmony, a sense of emotional uh, consistency between who she is and her external world. But is that really the way we want to measure our relationship with God? I think not. I, I think it leaves us in a very uncertain place. When you have a devotion... Spend some time in prayer and reading Bible study. How will you know if you've had a valuable time? If it's been valuable, say, to God or to your soul? If your only measuring stick is your own experience, did it move me emotionally? 
How will you know if there's been some value in your experience of worship today? Will you ask yourself what it meant to God or what it meant to your spirit? Or will you only ask yourself, did I feel moved in some emotional sense? Or what about an act of compassion? Oftentimes these are uh, hard, troubling, and oftentimes smelly things where we find ourselves truly helping people. They're not particularly satisfying emotionally. Uh, this past week, I had a hamburger. At Red, I had the Royal Red Robin. And when I bit into it, I was having a heavenly experience. <laughs> was I in some way more reconciled to God than I was when I left, not 15 minutes later, and felt death coming over me? <laughs> Philip, your experience is so variable. It depends on your sleep, your hormone balances, all of these things. Is that how you will assess what God is to you? And who I am. Paul complained about unanswered prayer. Three times I asked the Lord to take this thorn out of my flesh. Three times. And what does the Lord say? He uses the same word. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough, my grace. Your experience notwithstanding. Well, which one of these three men do you find yourself most relating to you to? Peter, Thomas, Philip, the one who thinks that belief is about action or understanding or experience. Which of these three uh, things is most likely to displace true belief in your own life? Or here's another way of saying it. When you feel like something's broken in your relationship with God, is it because of which of these three things? Is it that you thought it was all about the way, living a moral life? Is it because you had hoped it would give you the answers to all of your questions? Or is it because you thought it would give you the richest of all possible experiences of life itself? I'll tell you, for me, I'm a Peter. I, I, it's, it's when I fail morally. It's when I don't live up to even my own standards, to say nothing of God's standards, that I say, I must have drifted away from God. I must have lost him or somehow he has lost me. And I'm praying about that in my own life. But this is what belief looks like, remember, from the outside and not from the inside. And this is why their hearts are troubled. From the inside, belief looks very different. And Jesus has been trying to pre pre present that to them over and over in every answer to his question. You see, it turns out it's, uh, belief is not about anything. That'd be the wrong preposition. The, the preposition that John uses throughout his gospel is almost always the preposition in. In. Believe in me, Jesus says. It's just interesting. Interesting that for John, he never uses the noun belief. It's always the verb believe. And it's always accompanied, almost always accompanied with some sense of in. In. Why? Why is that in so important? We see, Peter can't find the way. Thomas can't find the truth. Philip can't find the life. And Jesus says, it's all in me. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And again and again, his answer to each of these three men has been about their knowledge. Knowledge in the biblical sense, which means personal relationship, close intimacy. Have you not known me, Peter? You know the way because you know me. Have you not known me, Thomas? You know the truth because you know me. Have you not known me, Philip? You know the life. You've seen the Father because you know me. The Father is in me. 
From the inside, belief is nothing more than an intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It's a real relationship. It's relating to him personally. It's a trusting relationship. To know him. Uh, Austin Farrer, the British theologian and pastor, uh, he says, you know, the reason so many of us fail to believe is because we're thinking of belief in the abstract. Uh, believe without an object. But belief is like a lot of attitudes, as he describes it. You can't have the attitude except in response to its object. And so there's no point in thinking about trying to believe in general. It's only when we come into direct contact with the object that it wins our belief. And so uh, Farrer writes, it's an awkward job to take up an attitude until you are face to face with the object which calls for it. And later he says, there's really no belief in God without belief in my God. You see, without looking face to face at Jesus Christ and to recognize he is my God. He's not an abstraction. He's a person who's speaking to me and inviting, winning my belief. We don't live uh, by the confidence of our own actions or our understanding or our experience. It's his actions, his understanding and his experience that makes all the difference in the world. And so we return to the tool shed. Lewis says, you, know, you can think about this experience, the difference between looking at and looking along. Uh, if you think about a young man who falls in love. A young man who falls in love. Now, we can look at that experience and learn a lot. Like a, I don't know, a psychologist might look at it or a, a neurochemist might think of the brain chemistry that's going on. Or a sociologist might look at behaviors and get a lot of insight into what's happening. And we would learn about love. But if I take that half step to the side and allow that beam to fall on my eye, if I allow myself to actually experience love like the young man is experiencing, it's a whole other thing altogether. For this young man would not trade 10 minutes of casual conversation with this particular young woman for all the women in the world. And now it's as though he sees life in full color. And uh, it's as though he finally hears the voice that he'd been trying to remember all of his life. And so when Jesus is risen from the dead, these three and many others would come to believe in Jesus. They would know that he really wants to have a personal relationship with them. He wins their belief and they take that half step to the side and look along Jesus at all of life. Let's pray. This text, God invites us. We thank you for that invitation. We, we, we ask your forgiveness for how complicated we have made this all to seem. For you seem just to want to reassure us. Just believe in me. You have known me, have you not? And so this morning, no matter how many years we've sat in church and known about you, we hear your call to take that step to the side and enter into belief. To respond to your invitation to relationship. Grant by your grace, substance and reality to our knowing Jesus Christ today.
For it is in His name and for His sake that we pray. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.